One day, a lady in the grocery store bumped into the pastor of the church her family had started to attend. Betty just loved the pastor's church, and she was so thankful for the impact that its members were having on her life. Well, as she complimented the pastor on his wonderful church, she blurted out, Oh, Pastor Tom, I just love your body. Oops. Of course, she was referring to the body of Christ, but that's not how it was heard by the bystanders, and it made for an embarrassing moment. Well, the New Testament speaks of the church metaphorically as the body of Christ. At his incarnation, God's Son clothed himself in a human body to touch and to help and to heal. Today, Jesus carries on through another body, the church. Just as our spirit and mind interact with our surroundings through our body, likewise, the church is the means by which Jesus interacts with the needy world. We are his hands and his feet and his mouth. 1 Corinthians 12 teaches us that the Spirit of Christ works through the body of Christ. And as his body, our job is to cooperate with his Spirit. I hope people look at our church and say, Lord, I just love your body. Chapter 12 is divided into two parts. Verses 1 through 11 discuss our gifts, whereas verses 12 through 31 talk about our place. Chapter 12 is all about using our gifts and finding our place. Verse 1 begins. Now concerning spiritual gifts, brethren, I do not want you to be ignorant. The Holy Spirit was active in this church. The church of Corinth was abounding with spiritual gifts. The gifts were commonplace, but they weren't always coupled with common sense. There was an ignorance in this church over the proper use of spiritual gifts. And as a result, the gifts were being abused and misused. You know, it's sad, but today there is still much ignorance among Christians over spiritual gifts. God intends for His gifts to unite us. All too often, they cause schism and divide us. When it comes to spiritual gifts, there seems to me to be two extremes. On the one hand, there's a charismania. On the other hand, there is a charisphobia. I grew up in a church dominated by charisphobia or the fear of charismatic behavior and charismatic practice. The supernatural gifts of the Spirit were actually explained away as having passed with the apostles. We were erroneously taught that the compilation of the New Testament made the spiritual gifts obsolete. And yet that's not in the Bible. Nowhere does Scripture suggest that healings and miracles and tongues and the like have passed away. Rather, these gifts are gifts just as relevant for 21st century Christians as for 1st century Christians. They're gifts that we should seek. Our old church was afraid of the charismata or spiritual gifts. But I soon found other churches that were dominated by them. This is what I call charismania. It's possible to be so enamored with the gifts that you neglect the giver. This is what was going on at the church in Corinth. The Corinthian believers were thrilled with supernatural displays of God's power, but they failed to apply that power to holy and godly and united living. 
Here's where the church needs a balance. We need the power of God's spiritual gifts, but we also need the knowledge to use that power effectively. You know, some churches are like a fireplace with no fire. Oh, they're cold, they're empty. There's an orthodoxy, but there's no life. Other churches are a fire without a fireplace. A preoccupation with these gifts burns out of control. Hey, what we need is we need the fire in the fireplace. We need the fire of God's Spirit, but within the fireplace of God's Word. We want to see believers warmed, not burned. It's been said, as a dove climbs on two wings, likewise the Holy Spirit lifts the church on both the gifts of the Spirit and the graces or fruits of the Spirit. Here are the two wings of the dove, the fruits of the Spirit and the gifts of the Spirit. We need them both. Well, verse 2, you know that you were Gentiles carried away to these dumb idols, however you were led. Apparently, the Corinthians were particularly enamored with the vocal gifts, with prophecy and tongues and interpretation of tongues, and for a good reason. The Corinthians had lived their whole life serving mute idols, gods with no voice. They served chunks of stone or wood that were unable to speak, dumb gods. Now they were enamored by an audible God. They had embraced a God who speaks. The Christian God has a voice. The Holy Spirit spoke to them and through them. No wonder they got carried away. And yet Paul warns them. Therefore I make known to you that no one speaking by the Spirit of God calls Jesus accursed. And no one can say that Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. Every time you hear someone say, thus saith the Lord, please don't assume that what comes next is from the Lord. It may be, but it may not be. Reminds me of the fisherman who cut a hole in the ice. He baited his hook and was just about to drop his bait when he heard a voice. No fish are under the ice. Well, he moved a few feet away and he cut another hole. He was just about to lower his hook when he heard the voice again. There are no fish under the ice. He looked up to heaven and he shouted, Lord, is that you? The voice spoke, no, it's the ice rink manager. We need to test the voices to make sure they're from God. Do they harmonize with God's word, both the written word, the Bible, and the living word, our Lord Jesus? This is why Paul says no one speaking of the Spirit will ever speak ill of Jesus. The Holy Spirit moves upon a person's heart to submit to the Lord Jesus, to proclaim their allegiance to Jesus, not deny His authority. When we study spiritual gifts, remember miracles can be counterfeited. The pagan priests in Egypt were able to duplicate Moses' miracles up to a point. The end times Antichrist will work lying wonders, we're told. Mormons claim to speak in tongues. The gifts of the Holy Spirit build up the body of Christ. They're good. That's why Satan does his best to copy them or confuse them. Verse 4. There are diversities of gifts, but the same Spirit. There are differences of ministries, but the same Lord. And there are diversities of activities, but it is the same God who works all in all. 
In my opinion, in this verse, Paul categorizes three types of spiritual gifts. The first he calls gifts, which are the motivations of the Spirit. These are the gifts listed in Romans chapter 12. They're basic motivations for service that the Spirit births in us at our conversion. They color and shape our lives and our ministry. The second type of spiritual gift he calls ministries. These are men or ministers, supernaturally called individuals who serve the body of Christ. Ephesians 4 lists these ministries, apostle, prophet, evangelist, pastor, teacher. But the third type that's discussed here of spiritual gift is called activities. The Greek term is energio or energies. Verse 7 refers to these gifts as manifestations of the Spirit. These are the spontaneous allocations of spiritual ability. Motivations of the Spirit, ministries of the Spirit, and manifestations of the Spirit. And that's what we find in these next few verses. Paul lists nine activities or manifestations of the Spirit in verses 7 through 10. He says, But the manifestation of the Spirit is given to each one. Realize spiritual gifts are not natural abilities that we were born with, nor are they learned skills that we cultivate through practice. No, these gifts are an evidence of the Holy Spirit at work in and through our lives. Once there was an old lumberjack, he was told he needed to purchase a chainsaw. Someone told him, said, look, you'll chop four times more wood with a chainsaw than you will with an axe. But after several outings with his new chainsaw, the lumberjack was chopping less wood. In frustration, he returned it to the hardware store. Well, the clerk was surprised. He, he cranked a saw to troubleshoot the problem. Well, as soon as he did, the lumberjack had this strange look on his face. He asked the clerk, what's that noise? He didn't realize you had to turn it on. Spiritual manifestations and gifts are like power tools. The Holy Spirit revs up supernatural spiritual capacities that enable us to do more and do better for God. These spiritual gifts are available to believers, to you and me. And notice their outcome. Paul says, therefore, the prophet of all. When a Christian receives and functions in a spiritual gift, it's not to lift him up, it's to benefit the whole body of Christ. And this is vital. As we study spiritual gifts, we need to know why God gives them. For the pride of a few? No. For the promotion of the special? No. Paul is emphatic. Spiritual gifts are given by God for the profit of all. And in verses 8 through 11, Paul lists nine manifestations of the Holy Spirit. He organizes them in three sets of three, gifts of wisdom, the word of knowledge, the word of wisdom, and the discerning of spirits, the gifts of wonder, faith, healings, and miracles, and then the gifts of worship, prophecy, tongues, and interpretation of tongues. And the list of gifts begins in verse 8. For to one is given the word of wisdom through the Spirit, to another the word of knowledge through the same Spirit. Knowledge is information, wisdom is application. 
And we need both, don't we? A word of wisdom or a word of knowledge is just that. It's a word. It's not the whole book. It's a bit or a portion. Suddenly, in a perplexing situation, the Lord gives you a piece of the puzzle that's crucial for that moment. Perhaps it's not all the information you'd like, but it's enough to make sense of the situation and to know what course you might need to take. A word is a flash of genius. Bible teacher Harold Horton describes these words of wisdom and words of knowledge as divinely granted flashes of revelation. It's an insight that rolls across the screen of your mind. Info you could have never known apart from God's Spirit. The next time you're in a confusing situation where you need wisdom or where you need knowledge, pray and ask God to give you a word of wisdom or a word of knowledge. Verse 9, to another, faith by the same Spirit. It's been said, nobody ever crosses a canyon in two steps. At times, you need to take a leap of faith. And the gift of faith is what prompts that leap. It's a special faith given to you by the Holy Spirit that enables you to rise up under duress and be bold for God. This is lion's den faith. This is giant slaying faith. This is water-walking faith. This is mountain-moving faith. It's a special gift of faith that God can give us when our back's against the wall or when we're facing an impossible situation. Once again, if you're in that place and you need an extra surge of faith, pray for this gift. He says, to another, gifts of healings by the same Spirit. Now realize that ultimately, God will heal all of our sicknesses. You realize that, don't you? When we arrive in heaven, we'll receive perfect health. On earth, there are times when God doesn't heal. We all die at some point. None of us escapes death. For all of us, there's going to be one illness that God's not going to heal. We're going to die. Most commonly, when God does heal, it's through natural processes. You know, He's designed our bodies with amazing, rejuvenating capabilities. God also heals medicinally. He uses doctors. The marvels of modern medicine are no less a miracle from God, in my opinion. But on occasion, God also heals supernaturally. There is a gift of healing. God can and does use individuals within the church to lay hands on the sick and pray for their recovery. And we've seen these miracles. I'll never forget one lady. She was suffering from a serious heart disease, and she was facing major surgery. And she asked if we could come up to her house and pray for her, which we did. The next day, she called the church office. After her pre-op exam, her doctor told her that her problem was gone, and he canceled her surgery. We praise the Lord. Is there a doctor in the house? Yes. His name is Jesus. And notice the double plural here. It's the gifts of healings. Apparently, there are different types of healings. There's physical healing or mental healing or emotional healing. There are also different gifts of healing. Or ways of mediating God's healing. Certainly through intercessory prayer, that would be one. Or through the physical touch of the laying on of hands, that would be another. Hey, if you're sick, 
Or if you know someone who's sick, pray and ask God to give you the gift of healing and pray for that person. Verse 10 continues the list to another, the working of miracles. If you believe Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, God created the heavens and the earth, then you should be able to believe in miracles. For if God created space, time, and matter and the laws governing nature, then he can suspend or override those laws whenever he desires. I'll never, I never validated this story, but I once heard my pastor, Pastor Chuck, tell of a girl who didn't have gas money to get to church one night. She really wanted to come to Calvary Chapel, and so she took the garden hose and she filled up her tank of her car with water. And then she asked God to turn it into gasoline. I guess she figured God turned the water into wine. He could turn the water into gasoline. Well, when she finished praying, she got into her car and she drove to Calvary Chapel and enjoyed the service that night. God responded to her simple faith. Did that actually happen? I don't know. But do I believe it could have happened? Absolutely. You know, Billy Graham once wrote, As we approach the end of the age, I believe we will see a dramatic recurrence of signs and wonders which will demonstrate the power of God to a skeptical world. Just as the powers of Satan are being unleashed with greater intensity, so I believe God will allow signs and wonders to be performed. I believe that too. We all should be open to the miraculous. Well, he says, to another prophecy, to another discerning of spirits, to another different kinds of tongues, to another the interpretation of tongues. In chapter 14, we're going to discuss prophecy and tongues and interpretation of tongues in depth. So we'll wait till chapter 14 to do that. Here, Paul also mentions discerning of spirits. You know, we teach our kids to read, to recognize and understand words and sentences and paragraphs. But you know, for our kids to survive in the crazy world of ours, they also need to be able to read between the lines. Not everyone's going to be honest with them. Not everybody's going to be straightforward. Our kids need discernment that goes beyond what is simply seen. And this is one of the gifts of the Holy Spirit, discerning of spirits. My wife has the gift of discerning of spirits, and it's come in handy over and over and over again uh, in ministry and in our marriage. You know, a false prophet comes as a wolf in sheep's clothing. Satan appears as an angel of light. The gift of discernment enables us to see behind the disguise. We need to pray uh, for the discerning of spirits. And then verse 11, but one and the same spirit works all these things, distributing to each one individually as he wills. See, you and I don't get to pick the gift that we want. You can't say, oh, I'd like healing. That'd really be cool to kind of touch people and have them be healed. It doesn't work that way. It's God's Spirit that chooses what gifts to distribute to each person. Spiritual gifts are ours to use, but they remain God's gifts. He is the power behind them. And thus, when we exercise them, we need to rely on the Holy Spirit's direction. The Spirit remains sovereign over His gifts. 
In fact, the Greek word translated spiritual gifts back in verse 1 of chapter 12 is the word pneumotikos, which means things belonging to the Spirit. This is why I believe, or why I don't believe, that a spiritual gift is something that you and I just sort of carry around in our back pocket as if it belongs to us and then kind of whip it out whenever we want to show off. The gifts of the the Spirit don't work on demand. They're God's gifts. They're administered by the sovereign Holy Spirit. Well, now that Paul has introduced to us the gifts, from here on he describes how they operate in church life, how they exist for the profit of all. We need to know and use our gift, but we also need to find our place. And so verse 12 tells us, For as the body is one and has many members, but all the members of that one body being many are one body, so also is Christ. If you're an adult of average size, here's what you accomplish every 24 hours. Your heart beats 103,689 times. Your blood travels 168 million miles. You breathe 23,040 times. You inhale 438 cubic feet of air. You eat three and a half pounds of waste. Uh, I'm sorry, food. Probably waste if you're eating junk food. You eat three and a half pounds of food. That's Some of us eat more. Some of us eat less. You drink 2.9 quarts of liquid. You lose seven-eighths pound of waste. You speak 4,800 words. You move 750 muscles. Your nails grow 0.000046 of an inch. Your hair grows 0.017 inch, if you still have any. And you use 7 million brain cells. No wonder you feel exhausted at the end of a day. Your body is a miracle of engineering. It consists of several trillion cells and 10 major organs working in precise synchronization with one another. You see, the human body is an amazing blend of both unity and diversity. And so is the body of Christ. We are all many members, but we should function as one body. Look at the people around you in this room tonight. We're different folks from divergent backgrounds, with varied gifts, with diverse callings. And yet God has put us all together in one body. And he wants us to function and work together in harmony. And in the next 14 verses, from verse 14 to 27, Paul is going to describe the interconnectedness of the body of Christ. And realize this emphasis, the church, as an integrated whole, was revolutionary to the ancients. When you visit the ruins of Corinth, a must-see is the archaeological museum. When we went to Corinth, we went there. It's an amazing place. There's an exhibit within the museum of terracotta or clay-baked figurines that have been fashioned as body parts. In the display cases, you find legs and hands and eyes and ears and female breasts and even genitalia and internal organs. Different body parts made out of the terracotta. You see, the city of Corinth had a temple dedicated to Asclepius, who was the Greek god of healing. 
So when a person became ill, sick, they made a replica of the diseased or the broken body part. And they offered it as a sacrifice to Asclepius in hopes of healing. Thousands of such body parts have been found in the ruins of ancient Corinth. Now, this is strange to us, but understand, it was in keeping with the notions of healing in the ancient world. Body parts were considered isolated. They were considered separate from each other. So that if an organ or an appendage was diseased, the ailment was assumed to be confined to that particular part. Few people understood the interconnectedness of the human body. Pagans isolated the body parts instead of viewing the body's health holistically. In contrast here, Paul believed in a creator, in a designer, whose imprint, on all, whose imprint is on all of us, even our bodies. God made us one body with multiple connected members. And the health of our bodies are determined by the cooperation of our members. God built our bodies in a way that would illustrate the body of Christ. And so verse 13, he begins this illustration of the interconnectedness of our body. He says, for by one spirit we were all baptized into one body. Whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free, and have all been made to drink into one spirit. The body begins with life. The key ingredient in the church is life. And life comes by the Spirit. We've all been made alive or baptized into this body through one Spirit. Now here's where we need to clear up some confusion. Non-Pentecostals often point out from verse 13 that Paul uses spirit baptism synonymously with Christian conversion. And they're right. He says, for by one spirit we were all baptized into one body. When we're saved, we are baptized or we are initiated into the body of Christ. We're made alive in Christ by the Spirit. But then the non-Pentecostals conclude that in the New Testament, spirit baptism then always refers to conversion, which it doesn't. Realize non-Pentecostals believe you receive everything relating to the Spirit at conversion, that there's no empowerment subsequent to conversion or to salvation. Thus, they insist that you're baptized with the Spirit at conversion. They don't believe in a second blessing. But this is an error based on a misunderstanding of verse 13. Realize the term baptism or baptized is like our English term watch. It's a word with multiple meanings. A person can wear a watch, or a person can stand watch, or a person can be watchful. Likewise, the word baptism has multiple meanings. It can relate to initiation. To baptize is to make part of, like what we would say of a rookie quarterback taking his first sack. Well, he got his baptism. He was initiated. But the word baptize can also mean to engulf or to immerse, as in water baptize, baptism. He's immersed in the water or baptized in the water. Now, 
whenever Paul uses the term baptism, it refers to conversion. Romans 6 says that by faith we are baptized into Christ. We're united spiritually into the life of Jesus. I now share in all that he is and has accomplished. That's when Paul uses the term baptism. But when John or Luke or Jesus or Peter use the term baptism, it speaks of immersion, not conversion. In Acts, Luke describes the outpouring of the Holy Spirit on people who are already believers, already converted, with the phrases, filled with the Holy Spirit, or baptized in the Holy Spirit. Thus, throughout the New Testament, the same word baptized is used to denote two separate experiences. There is an initiation into Christ that's called baptism, but there's also a saturation with Christ that's also called baptism. Thus, there is a spiritual empowerment available to Christians after they believe. The Holy Spirit wants to fill us up, to baptize us and immerse us. Don't let anyone rob you of the baptism of the Holy Spirit. But here Paul is speaking of our initiation into Christ. When I convert to Jesus, I'm made a part of his body. I'm initiated into his body. In a sense, spiritual baptism is like a merger. A smaller company, that's you, gets gobbled up by a larger corporation, that's us. The smaller outfit still does business, but it's now under new leadership with a new mission and new resources and new partners. We're no longer a mom and pop, you could say. We're now part of Christ's church. Well, verse 14, he begins to discuss this. For in fact, the body is not one member, but many. And if the foot should say, because I am not a hand, I am not of the body, is it therefore not of the body? And if the ear should say, because I am not an eye, I am not of the body, is it therefore not of the body? You see, one of the hindrances to harmony in the church is jealousy. We can refuse to accept our place. Oh, if we can't play the position we want, we're just going to take our bat and ball and go home. We refuse to submit our individual desires and ambition for the greater good. This is why at church, you need to leave your agenda at the door. Church is not about any one of us individually. It's about the whole of us. Don't expect to serve on your terms. It's the Spirit who dictates our calling and our place. What if your foot on your body got tired of its role? What if your foot started to grumble? Man, it's hot and smelly in this sock all the time. Dr. Scholes is my only friend. I have to bear the increasing weight of everyone else in this body. I'm tired of being treated like a heel. My soul is so weary. I'm the one who's always towing the line. I keep putting my best foot forward, and nobody ever notices me. I've had enough. I'm putting my foot down. That's what feet do, you know. People even think I'm corny. Or imagine your ear starting to complain about its place on the body. I'm tired of getting waxed all the time. If someone pierces me one more time, I'm out of ear. Out of ear. What if the members of your body got tired of playing their role and started competing with one another? You'd become spastic. 
You wouldn't accomplish much, that's for sure. And the same would happen to the body of Christ if all of its members had their own agenda and refused to cooperate with one another. The body of Christ would be uncoordinated and crippled. Notice verse 17. If the whole body were an eye, where would be the hearing? And if the whole were hearing, where would be the smelling? But now God has set the members, each one of them, in the body just as he pleased. You know, if you told your little league team that everyone could play whatever position they wanted, you'd end up with ten pitchers and maybe a shortstop. Everybody wants the glamour positions. But you'd have a lousy team, wouldn't you? And the same is true with the church. Here Paul paints a grotesque image. What if the whole body were an eyeball, a big eye rolling around? We'd all be blue. I mean, we could see, but with no feet and no hands, we couldn't go anywhere or do anything. And this is what becomes of many churches. They turn into one big eye. I want this. I deserve that. Some churches suffer from eye strain. Hey, we need to be the body led by the Holy Spirit, not led by our own ego. Paul adds in verse 19, And if they were all one member, where would the body be? But now indeed they are many members, yet one body. Remember, the body of Christ is a blend of unity and diversity. And to stress one above the other is a mistake. We need a healthy balance of both. On the one hand, to overstress our unity robs us of our diversity. Several years ago, I read of a major scientific breakthrough in Scotland. For the first time, scientists had cloned a sheep. They named her Dolly. And I remember reading that and thinking, that's no big deal. The church has been cloning sheep for centuries. For often the church strips Christians of their individuality in the name of discipleship. We conform people, not to the image of Jesus, but to our own image. It's not good. Here's a poem for you. Be what I want, no more, no less, because I am right and no one else. Think what I think, do only what I do, then and only then can I fellowship with you. See, that's the attitude we need to avoid. There's going to be diversity among us. We need to appreciate that diversity. It makes us stronger. Let's not overstress our unity to the exclusion of our diversity, but neither should we overstress our diversity and thus hinder our unity. At times, the health of the body needs me to express my individuality, but at other times, our corporate health is best served by me suppressing my individuality. You know, there are Christians who never settle in and become part of a church because they're unwilling to swap their own personal agenda for the goals of the group. They insist on their own thing, and they miss out on a God thing. This is why unity and diversity need to be balanced by maturity. Remember, the gifts of the Holy Spirit are for the profit of all. This should be our motivation. And then verse 21 says it best. And the eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you, nor again the head to the feet, I have no need of you. 
Certainly, we all have a unique place in the body. We all need each other. One day, the ship's captain and chief engineer, they were arguing over whose job was most vital. They decided to swap places to prove their point. The engineer came to the bridge, and the captain went to the engine room. An hour later, the captain appeared on deck. He was covered with oil and grease. He was waving a monkey wrench in his hand. And he shouted to the engineer. He said, Chief, you need to get down there. I can't make her go. The engineer shouted back, Of course you can't because I just ran her aground. Both men realized that they needed each other. Hey, you have gifts that can bless and benefit me. And I have gifts that in turn can bless and benefit you. We too need to recognize that we need each other. At the close of World War II, entertainer Jimmy Durante was invited by Ed Sullivan to a veterans hospital to cheer up some wounded soldiers. Durante had a radio show scheduled that same night, but he said he'd try to squeeze in one short routine. Well, Sullivan was shocked when the short routine turned into a couple of hours. Later, Sullivan asked Jimmy why he had stayed. Well, Durante pointed to two soldiers who were sitting side by side on the front row. Both men had lost an arm in the war, and they did their clapping with their two remaining hands, working together. It so moved Durante that he couldn't leave. And you see, this is what moves the Spirit of God to move upon us when He sees us cooperating and clapping our two wounded hands together. Spiritually speaking, we're all disabled in some way. But where I'm weak, you can help me be strong. And where you're weak, perhaps I can help you be strong. God wants us to see that we're better for him together than we can be apart. Did you hear about this big controversy at the First Church of the Hand Tools? It was a real Donnybrook, trust me. Some of the members started complaining about Brother Hammer. You're too forceful. You're always pounding home your points, nailing the rest of us. Well, Brother Hammer, he pointed to Brother Screwdriver. He said, well, I'm no worse than him. He's always going around in circles. This angered the screwdriver. He said, what about Brother Plain? All his work is on the surface. He has no real depth. Well, Brother Plain, he shouted at Brother Tape Measure. Oh, you're so judgmental. You're always measuring people, sizing them up. You always think you're right. Brother Tape Measure, he turned and he snapped angrily at Brother Sandpaper. He said, well, look at him. He's so rough and gritty. He's always rubbing people the wrong way. We all should just go back into the box. Well, that's when the master carpenter arrived. Jesus put on his carpenter's apron, and he went to work building a pulpit from which to preach the word of God. He used the hammer and the screwdriver and the plane and the tape measure and the sandpaper and all the other tools, each in just the right way and at just the right time. Well, finally... Brother Saul, he saw it. He rose up and he informed the others. He says, brothers, we're all tools of equal importance in the hands of the Lord. And you know, so are we. Well, verse 22. No, much rather those members of the body which seem to be weaker are necessary. And those members of the body which we think to be less honorable, on these we bestow greater honor. For example, there is a valve leading into your stomach that normally closes, keeping the harmful acids in your stomach where they belong. 
But did you know that when that valve weakens, those acids can float back up into your esophagus? The result is called esophageal reflux, or in layman's terms, major league heartburn. And speaking from experience, this is no laughing matter. It amazes me that the weakening of one tiny piece of human flesh can create such intense pain. It's a reminder that every member of our body plays a pivotal role. You may be a tiny valve in the body of Christ, but if you fail to do your part correctly, the whole body will be affected. There are parts in the body of Christ that, like that stomach valve, they serve, but they're never seen. And no one thinks of these unseen members until there's a problem. Oh, if a nursery worker fails to show up, or if the sound man sleeps in, or if the cleaners miss a week, suddenly everyone realizes how important their role happens to be. Some might say, I have the glamour job. I get to get up here in front of everyone and teach God's Word from week to week. But if everyone else didn't do their job, there's no way that I would be able to do mine. Verse 23 teaches us to make sure the people behind the scenes don't have to break down to be appreciated. The church should go out of its way to give honor to those members who might end up getting overlooked. Verse 23 ends, And our unpresentable parts have greater modesty, but our presentable parts have no need. You know, the service the pastor performs is conspicuous, but not so for the folks who serve behind the scenes. The pastor gets plenty of recognition. The church's shows of appreciation should be for the unseen servants. He says, but God composed the body, having given greater honor to that part which lacks it, that there should be no schism in the body, but that the members should have the same care for one another. Division is less likely if honor is divided equally among all of its members. Verse 26, and if one member suffers, all the members suffer with it. Or if one member is honored, all the members rejoice with it. If I accidentally, boom, bang my thumb down with a hammer, it won't just cause a swollen thumb. Every other inch of my body is going to throb. When one member of the body hurts, then the whole body is in pain. And just as the human body is interconnected, so should be the body of Christ. That when one of us hurt, we all should hurt. When one of us rejoices, we all should rejoice. The church, it's been said, real fellowship doubles our joys and divides our grief. The church ought to be either praying for each other or rejoicing with each other. We need to share with each other both our pains and our joys. It's part of Christians learning to live side by side. He says, now you are the body of Christ and members individually. And God has appointed these in the church, first apostles, second prophets, third teachers, after that miracles, then gifts of healings, helps, administrations, variety of tongues. Now remember verses 8 through 11 provided us a list of spiritual gifts, whereas here Paul mentions two additional gifts, helps and administrations. The gift of helps is the supernatural knack for assisting someone without making them feel like you're taking over. You know, I've had people help me in a way that only highlighted their 
competencies and my inadequacies. A person with the spiritual gift of helps can assist someone in a way that brings out the best in that person. That's what makes their gift so special. And then the gift of administrations belongs to the person who can help organize and manage activities. Business mogul Andrew Carnegie used to brag, take away our factories, our trade, our avenues of transportation, our money, leave us with nothing but our organization, and in four years we could reestablish ourselves. He, he recognized that his greatest resource was his organization. Spirit-inspired organization is also a powerful and needed tool in the body of Christ. Actually, seldom does a church need more organization, but what every church needs is better organization. It's been said, we need men and women with the courage to dream, the ability to organize, and the faith to execute. And then in verse 29, he asks a series of rhetorical questions. Are all apostles, are all prophets, are all teachers, are all workers of miracles, do all have gifts of healings? Again, Paul is emphasizing the diversity within the body, that we all have different gifts and different callings. I have no doubt the most frustrating experience in the world is trying to be something that you're not. If you feel forced to function in someone else's calling, if you're always trying to mimic their gift or be like them, you're destined for misery. This is why we need to find our place and use our gifts. For God is given to each one separately. You know, we, we don't all, we're not all to fulfill the same function. We all have different roles. And when we do what God wills for us to do, then that's when we're blessed in incredible ways. But notice here Paul's last two rhetorical questions. He says, do all speak with tongues and do all interpret? And the obvious answer to both questions is the same as to the previous five questions. No. And this is why I disagree with Pentecostals who believe that everyone who is filled or baptized with the Holy Spirit will speak in tongues. That's not what Paul says. Paul says not everyone will speak in tongues and not everyone will interpret. Tongues is a wonderful way to praise God and to pray to God. And we're going to talk about it when we get to chapter 14. And every believer should be open to speaking in tongues. But Paul is clear, not everyone will. Again, don't be upset about it. Learn to find your place and use your gift. In some charismatic and Pentecostal circles, the gift of tongues is worn like a badge of honor. It separates the spiritual haves and the spiritual have-nots. And if you don't speak in tongues, you get treated as if you're spiritually inferior. This is sad. Again, we're going to learn later in the letter that the gift of tongues is actually the least of the gifts. Paul concludes chapter 12, but earnestly desire the best gifts. And of course, this begs the question, what are the best gifts? Well, I believe the best spiritual gift is whatever it is you happen to need at that point in time. If you're about to make a huge decision, then the best gift is the word of wisdom or the word of knowledge. If you're interacting with a person that you don't know, the best gift might be the gift of discernment. If I'm afraid, the best gift is the gift of faith. If I'm sick, the best gift would be the gifts of healings. And yet there is one commodity 
more important than any of these gifts. For Paul concludes, and yet I show you a more excellent way, which leads us to chapter 13. For sandwiched between these two great chapters on the life of the body of Christ and spiritual gifts is the love chapter. For the greatest gift of all is love. Here's the surest way to know you've been filled with the Holy Spirit. You can speak with the tongues of men and angels, but if you have not love, you're a clanging cymbal. Next week, we'll start with love.